I welcome any who've just joined us. I'm Joel, and I'm glad it's Advent season. I'm about to read aloud an ancient manuscript from the 63rd and 64th chapters of the prophet Isaiah. It's found in a book we call the Bible, and we read this every Lord's Day. Why? Because this book is no ordinary book. It is the word of Almighty God. This is a direct communication to you from the one who created you and this whole world. Friends, this is the primary means by which God makes his presence known to us. Let me ask you, and please listen. What would it be like if as this word was read, you became acutely aware that the presence of Almighty God had entered this room. That His presence was so pervasive, the experience so overwhelming, the intrusion of the infinite, the horror of the holy, the gravity of God's glory. It was so great that you had no other option but to deal with him. And when the service was over, you saw that everyone else in here had also met with Almighty God. In Scotland, 1812, there was a time of revival where God's presence was so palpable that it overwhelmed the entire culture. Let me read what a typical church service was like during this time. This is from the 1800s. It was a common thing, as soon as the Bible was opened, just as the reader began, for great meltings to come upon the hearers. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. Then the silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive countenances turned upon the reader. The convulsive and half-suppressed sigh might next be heard. Female sobbings followed. And after a little, every breast was heaving under the unaccountable agitation which moved the spirits of the assembled multitudes. An insatiable desire to hear the scriptures read and open prevailed. Notice the great meltings in the heart came before the preacher ever started with the sermon. The presence of God showed up the moment his word was read. Do you wish that could happen this morning? Do you long for an experience of the living God that would actually satisfy your soul? Are you desperate for blessings to come upon a community that has never experienced before? Well, the only way we get there is if we at least first start with taking up the appropriate posture and going to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for bringing us here to hear your direct communication, your holy word. And what we need more than anything is for you to visit us and to not hold back. We're so easily satisfied but by what cannot satisfy us. Will you rend the heavens and come down? Our time is short. Our need is great. We wait for you. 
save each and every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Isaiah. We'll be starting in verse 15, reading through chapter 64, verse 5. You'll find it printed in your bulletin on page 5. Now hear the word of our God. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully, who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, it is possible that there might have been some great meltings that were going on here. I didn't see any tears stealing down rugged faces. Nor did I hear any female sobbing. I did hear some agitation, didn't you? But I don't think it was the result of being overwhelmed by the presence of Almighty God. That's depressing. That's disappointing. Last week we sang this great hymn, Spirit of God, in these lines, Spirit of God who dwells in my heart, wean it from sin, through all its pulses move, Stoop to my weakness, mighty as you are, and make me love you as I ought to love. Teach me to feel that you are always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear, to check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. Teach me the patience of unceasing prayer. Those aren't just words for us to sing. That's, that's to be the cry of our hearts. That God would stoop down to my weakness, that I might experience he's always nigh, his passion filling all my frame so that I might be able to love him like the angels do. I want that. I want that not just for me, but I want that for all of us here. Do you? 
Friends, God wants us to cry out, to long for Him and to see that His presence is our only hope. God wants us to see that as we begin Advent 2022, that His presence is our only hope. And how do I know that? Because God gave us Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 64. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus came. And in Isaiah's day, Israel was in sorry shape. Sorry shape. It was not a good time for God's people, for the Old Testament church. The nation was divided. The leaders were corrupt. And most of God's people had turned from him. Now, America is not Israel, but I see some parallels to our own day particularly regarding the church. You know that 50 years ago, 90% of Americans claimed to be Christians. Now we're down to about 60%. And for many, God is just an add-on to their lives. In fact, most professing Christians don't see God as their only hope. The most recent Pew poll revealed that most people believe, most people professing to be Christians believe that they contribute to their salvation, not Christ alone. Weekly church attendance has dropped down to now 20%. Oh, and I see the looks when I invite folks to church. The look that says, yeah, I'd like to come, but coming to church would be a real inconvenience to my already really busy life. I know the look. Friends, America is well on its way to becoming Europe. And we don't need more evangelism. I'm convinced we need revival. That's why Advent 2022 is a good time to be in Isaiah. Because Isaiah teaches us in these verses two things. First, that God's presence, his felt presence is our only hope. And secondly, we need the patient practice of unceasing prayer. In fact, Isaiah 63 and 64 are Isaiah's revival prayer. But here's the thing, and it's why I began our Advent a series on a really depressive Debbie Downer kind of note, right? We cannot just commit ourselves to more prayer. Hey, let's everybody, let's leave here and let's just pray more. How far does that go? <laughs> sure, we might get encouraged today. We'll go at it enthusiastically for a while. But you know what happens. We run out of gas. There's only one way to persistent patient prayer. Prayer that's pleading that God come down in power. There's only one way. What's the way, Joel? I know the answer. Are you ready for it? We have to fail. We have to realize we're just total failures. We have to blunder so badly, crash so clearly, be dropped to our knees in defeat and disaster. That we'll finally come to the end, absolute end of trusting in ourselves and who we are and what we can do. Only wimpy, wore-out weakness will end up resulting in patient, persistent prayer for God to come down from on high. Paul discovered this when God stuck him with a painful thorn. Why? Because he would grow conceited. Paul prayed and prayed, God, relieve me of this pain. And God left it in and he told Paul this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Paul discovered something you may have discovered and may need to rediscover in your Christian walk. The soul that God uses, he first bruises. Your ego must die before power from on high. Which is why actually Paul concludes after hearing that from God, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. It's only when we appropriate how weak and failing we are apart from God's power that we will persistently pray for God's presence to come in. Friends, our weakness is our whip. Our failures are our fuel to persistent, patient prayer. Can I get an amen from anyone who feels like a failure this morning? A few, a few of you, I'm going to pray that you feel more like failures. All right? And there's nothing the contemporary culture, the contemporary church can contrive to change this culture, much less ourselves. We have to come to the end of ourselves to find our beginning in God. And when we see we're in such a mess, we'll find ourselves crying out in spirit like Isaiah does. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Isaiah begins his prayer, pleading that God will look down from heaven. Notice there's a very clear sense that Isaiah feels far from God. God is way up there. Is that you right now? Do you feel far from God? I'm so glad you're here. Stay with us. Isaiah sees that God cannot be near because he looks around at the condition of the Old Testament church. He's saying to God, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and compassion are held back from me. Isaiah is weaving together two images. First, the image of the Gabor, the mighty warrior, coming with gusto and power on God's people. The second, it's a motherly image. It's the language of a womb, the inner parts, like a mom's heart. Because while God is our Father, God... He has a deep burning passion for each and every one of us. God looks on us in love, but Isaiah sees that God is holding back. God is restraining his love. Why would God do this? Because we don't long for God the same way he longs for us. Verse 16, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, the Redeemer from of old is your name. If you do feel far from God, I would ask you one thing. In your prayers, do you address him as Father? Or just generically as God? Calling on God as your Father is one way you can begin to draw near to him when you're in all your mess. I meet a lot of non-Christians who I talk to God all the time, but I say to them, can you, you call him Father? In Isaiah's day, they wandered so far from God that they don't even look like God's people anymore. God had made promises to Abraham and Israel, that's Jacob, that he would be their God and the God of their children. But if Abraham and Jacob were to hop into the back of the future DeLorean time machine and jump ahead a thousand years, to Isaiah's day, they would step out of the DeLorean and say, God, who are these strangers living in the promised land that you gave to our children? We don't recognize them. 
They look just like the unbelieving pagans of the world. They're no longer recognizable. Isaiah sees just how far from God they are. They're failures. They're all failures. Let me ask you if the DeLorean pulled up today in 2022 and George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and Billy Graham all hopped out, what would they think of the church in America today? Isaiah goes on. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. On the surface, this may seem confusing. Why would God make his people, his own people, wander from him? Wander from his ways? Why would God harden their hearts? And the scary thing that this is, this is true. God does that. But it's not the whole story. In fact, you have to, you have to read what comes before this, where you hear hard-hearted Israel did it on their own. They wandered from God. They hardened their hearts. And if you're feeling far from God this morning, I have a question do you have anything to do with that? Did your eyes or feet start wandering from God first? Did you choose to dabble in sin? And you're thinking, well, I'm going to dabble with it for a little bit, but I can come back to God later. And now you can't find your way back. Or maybe you hardened your heart to God for some reason. Something happened in your life. And it ate at your conscience for a little bit. And for a little while, you're kind of afraid of what you're doing. But now, not so much. And look at you now. God's love for you. When you hear he loves you, it doesn't even make you flinch. Our wandering, our hard hearts towards God actually begins with us. Read the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. When we reject God or play with sin thinking we can come back to God later, God says basically, if that's what you want, I'll give you over to what you prefer to me. That's what he did in Isaiah's day. You cannot walk away from God and just think you have the power of yourself to actually sidle your way back to him. No. God will help you harden. That's what's happened in America. A nation built on godly principles. That's gone. I'm only 47 years old, but the ethics that were unthinkable in my childhood... They're now the normal. Things that were on the fringe are now on center stage to the applause of our culture. And much of the church has actually accommodated our culture. Many Christians, if not most, say that sexual sins, love of money, abortion, that these are okay in God's sights. They've actually wandered from what the church has held to for 2,000 years. And God says, Fine. If you don't want my rule, you don't want my ways, I will give you up to hard hearts. That's why evangelism is not the answer in our day. Actually, I had a lady call me up last Wednesday telling me that her husband had passed away. And she thanked me for leading him to Christ before he was gone. Praise be to God. I've been privileged to be a part of that a number of times in my life. I thank God for that. But we have a whole generation mesmerized to the tune of the piper in our day. 
It's a cross between born this way and captain of my own ship. And like lemmings, the whole generation, they're walking towards a cliff. Let's evangelize, yes, but evangelism is not the answer. Friends, we need revival. We need revival. We need God to do here what he is doing right now in China. Read about the church in Iran. The global south. Things are happening. Amazing things. God is at work. There are places in the world where revival are taking place. And it's happened in this nation before. And not just in the first and second great awakenings. Actually, I got to do research on the great revival of 57 and 58, where God cut through this whole culture like a sieve. There's actually a revival of the long hairs in my parents' day that changed the whole conversation of the 60s, you know, and all the sexual promiscuity and the rebellion. And suddenly just entire groups of people are coming to Jesus. It started with men and women, boys and girls, groaning like Isaiah, begging him not just to look down on us, but to come down. Look at this next passage. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Friends, here's a prayer that I hope sets the tone for our Advent. Do you know what the word Advent means? It means the coming of something notable or someone notable, of something unusual, something profound. What is Isaiah's hope as he looks at the ruins of Israel, of his culture, the sorry state of affairs? That God would rip apart the skies and come down in such a way that his presence is felt. This is figurative language here. I know that. Because God is everywhere. God doesn't need to come down, right? But what Isaiah longs for, what he desires with all his heart, is that God would make himself real to the people. Isaiah has been preaching, at least since chapter 6, to a people who have ears but cannot hear. So Isaiah says, Oh, that you would make your presence felt here. You notice each verse ends the same way. At your presence. Isaiah wants God to make the mountains shake, to bring the heat, to do awesome things, and for God to put his enemies on alert, this part, and to make the nations tremble. Isaiah is praying that God would make his presence so felt that all of his enemies would turn and that people all over the globe would turn into trembling worshipers. That's what Isaiah is praying for. Trembling worshipers of all the nations. And guess what? God answered Isaiah's prayer. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. God would rip apart the heavens and the Son of God would come down. And on a cold winter night in the little tiny town of Bethlehem, the answer to all of our longings were fulfilled in the birth of a baby boy. 
who came to be the crucified king, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. The wonderful news of Christmas is that the hopes and fears of all those years were met in Jesus Christ that night. And following his victory over death and his resurrection on Easter morn, within a century, the gospel was going out in power to the whole world. Nations were being brought to God, trembling with joy. Peace was coming, love, hope. And God all did all this with a baby. <laughs> Isaiah could have never imagined what God was going to do with a baby. And friends, if we stand on this side of the cross, seeing how God answered Isaiah's prayer, we can pray with great hope that he will answer our own prayers for our generation. Wouldn't it be great to look back at the end of our lives and to see we participated in a mattering thing, a thing that really mattered, to have prayed and witnessed a revival in our day, something that only God could do, but we got to participate in it. Wouldn't it be amazing to witness our neighbors, our families, our friends, our community, our nation, turning from the evil that is destroying them and finding joy in Jesus Christ. To see peace in families torn apart by sin. Children obeying their parents. Parents loving their children. Wives reconciling to husbands. Husbands to wives. Sisters and brothers coming back together. Wouldn't that be great? I turn on the news, and I see the exact opposite. It makes me want to turn it off. So let's do that this Advent. Every time we see something on the news that hurts our hearts, let's turn it off and let's pray, Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Prayer for revival is the first thing I really want to encourage this Advent. Let's be a people of prayer this Advent. My favorite prayer book, Ole Halsby, talks about the hard work of prayer between revivals, and he compares it to mining. He says that prayer is like boring holes in hard rock. <laughs> really tries our patience, doesn't it? We would really much rather just light the fuse and see the explosion, right? That's the exciting work. Anybody can light the fuse. In fact, many evangelists go around lighting fuses all the time to lots of noise, lots of excitement. But all that results is just a brief little fireworks display. Because the hard, patient work of rock boring wasn't done first. So let's rediscover this advent, the reward of being rock borers, a people of patient prayer. So that when the day comes for the fuses to be lit, the effects will actually be meaningful and glorious. And the hard rock of this culture will be impacted greatly by many people coming to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Someone other than us might get the credit when they get the privilege of lighting all the fuses and getting the whole thing going. But we will see our reward in heaven for all our revival labors that went completely unnoticed here on earth. This is actually the first sermon I've ever preached on revival. And I grew up in fireworks displays that didn't last because in great part they were largely unbiblical. Let's get the culture just worked up. They didn't promote the worship of God as he tells us to in the Bible. That's why I became a Reformed Presbyterian. But 
I've realized we tend to do the opposite. We have the opposite problem. We think that faithful biblical worship will get it done. Friends, we still need God's power. We need revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he uses the example of Elijah in that scene with the prophets of Baal. We need to construct the altar. We have to have right doctrine washed in the word. But we also need to pray for fire from heaven to come down. We need God's power if we're going to see a change in our family, our friends, our communities. It starts on calling on God to manifest his glory. Can I press on us just a little bit? What do we ask for prayer about? What do we tend to ask for prayer about? What are we asking God to do in our regular everyday prayers? When I ask at the beginning of service or someone else does, there's a lot of prayers for healing, for comfort, right? Every week we get a lot of those. Here's the thing. I'm going to press on you a little bit. You don't have to be spiritual at all to ask for those things. I have unbelievers at the hospital who ask me for these very things every single week, and they don't believe in God. Now, I'm not discouraging those requests. Don't hear me wrong. God says to make all our requests known to him. Make it all known, yes. So ask those things. We just went through the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray first for what? God's glory. God's glory to be made known. So we should be encouraged to pray for bigger things. Bigger things. And guess, here's the good news. God is never going to say to us, you want me to do what? Revive a whole community? You're asking me to reign over the whole world? He's God. He can do it. He can do far more than all we could ever ask for or imagine. So let's not be afraid to ask for big prayers. And the second thing I want to encourage is weight training. Training ourselves to wait for God's salvation. Final verses. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, You are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Isaiah tells us God will act for those who wait for him. Friends, Advent is about waiting in hope. So that's the second thing I want to encourage. Let's learn learn how to wait. Because as the poet R.S. Thomas said, The meaning is in the waiting. The meaning is in the waiting. Isn't that so countercultural? Timothy Paul Jones says, Our calendars are dominated not by the venerable rhythms of redemption, but by the swifter currents of consumerism and efficiency. The microwave saves us from waiting for soup to simmer on the stove. Credit cards redeem us from waiting on a paycheck to make purchases. And this backward extension of the Christian season liberates us from having to deal with the awkward lull of Advent. And so, before the last unpurchased Halloween costume has made its way back to the warehouse, halls and malls are decked with plastic holly and crimson ribbon. Thanksgiving provides a pre-Christmas test run on basting turkeys and tolerating relatives. 
but the primary function of Thanksgiving increasingly seems to be to supply a convenient time to gather for that spectacle of consumption and consumer debt known as Black Friday. I saw on the news we set online sales records on Thanksgiving and then we did the same on Good, uh, Black Friday. Let's use this season to show we have a different hope that no full cart on Cyber Monday can ever fix. Let's slow down and not allow consumerism to dominate this season with lesser joys, especially when there are so many hurting and helpless people all around us. Taking in the hurts, seeing the ruins are what spurs us to hope in something more. See, Advent is about longing for something more than what we can get here. My good pastor friend John Bonomo says, well, a properly observed Advent season is that it is a good safeguard. A properly observed Advent season is a good safeguard against the over-realized eschatology that marks much of the pageantry of modern-day Christmas season. For the message of Advent is that our true hope awaits a future fulfillment, and it will come simultaneously with divine judgment against all injustice and idolatry and hatred in our world. The message of Advent is not a plate of cookies and a cup of hot chocolate on a cold December day. It is rather the eternal fire of God, come and coming, to burn away the cold, dark winter of our sin and misery once and for all, and to shine its light of peace and holiness and life throughout the earth in the ages of ages, world without end. Friends, part of the reason that the church in our day does not hunger for God's word and his presence is because we're just so full, stuffed full of this world. I mean, what's the best way to make sure you're not hungry when you come to church? Well, eat a loaf of white bread, drink a gallon of milk, and suck on candy the whole time you're here at the service, right? If we're satisfying ourselves with this world, we won't long for heaven. So let's train ourselves to wait, to hunger more and more for God, and pray for his presence to bring salvation. And we shall be saved, along with many we pray for. Friends, Christ has come. He's made the way. And Christ will return. And he'll make all things new. There's coming a day, and I'm looking forward to it, when we will never be able to sin again. And we're going to be able to love God like the angels do. And we'll never feel pain. We'll never feel shame again. We'll never, ever, ever experience anything bad. So let's be so heavenly minded that we're of some earthly good here this Advent season. Let's with joy seek to do what is right in God's eyes, knowing that he will meet us even now and even make his presence known in the mundane moments of our little lives. So let's long for something more this Christmas, that God will sweep through this community, make his presence felt, and we along with many, many others will experience the hope, the love, the joy, and the peace that came to earth that first Christmas morn when God rent the heavens. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you look down and see us? Will you see us in our misery? Will you see us in our ruins? Lord, we have failed, and Lord, we're surrounded by failures. 
we ask and pray that you will rend the heavens and come down. We want to feel your presence so that we will be changed. And we want others to tremble. We want others to tremble and to know that you are God. We ask that you will show up and meet with them as well. And Heavenly Father, there are a lot of empty seats in this place. I pray that we'll less and less see coming here as an inconvenience, but rather that we will hunger and desire to hear your word read. We ask that your presence will be felt and that we'll have every expectation of coming back again and again to meet with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.